Hi, listeners. You can now listen to this community podcast production ad-free on Apple Podcasts and access the podcast one week early and get exclusive bonus content. Just hit the subscribe button now on Apple Podcasts. Or if you want access to all of the above, plus video versions of the podcast, head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This podcast discusses topics that may be triggering. Listener discretion is advised. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing. Hi listeners, I'm Sarah Ferris and welcome to Stop the Killing. Join me and my co-host, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program, Catherine Schweit. Catherine spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for solutions to the mass shooting crisis, but her experience is much more than just academic. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've watched the reality of poor planning. I've traced heroic acts of bravery, and I really sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Our hope is that together we can stop the cries of never again fading into until next time. Well, Catherine, here we are at episode one. This is a very emotive topic, isn't it? This is the most visceral situation that I've dealt with as an FBI agent. Tell us about today's case. So this episode, we're going to talk about probably one of the most emotional situations that we dealt with here in the United States, the massacre at Sandy Hook Elementary School. It happened at 9.30 in the morning on December 14, 2012. A 20-year-old man, armed with two handguns and a rifle, shot through a secured front door at the Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut. He killed 20 students and six adults, and he wounded two other adults inside the school. And prior to the shooting, I should tell you, he had killed his own mother in their home. So in all, 27 people were killed that day, two others wounded, and then the shooter committed suicide as the police were arriving on the scene. Wow, that is absolutely horrific. So let's look at the day of the shooting. Do we know if there was a trigger event that occurred leading up to it? Well, we don't know if there was a trigger. What we do know, like other shooters, is that he did employ extensive planning before the shooting. He researched a lot of other shootings worldwide. He packed several guns and hundreds of rounds of ammunition to take with him. He chose even his clothing to wear, and he destroyed his computer hard drive before he left the home. So we know he was not planning on coming back. So it wasn't just a spur of the moment. No. by the sounds of it. So I'm no. speculating, but was there any sign that perhaps the mother had discovered his plans and tried to stop him before he left the house? Was there any sign that there may have been a struggle at first? No. Sadly, uh, the mother was shot dead in her bed 
sometime they believe between 8 and 9 a.m. that morning. Um, the 22 caliber rifle that he had used uh, was found on the floor next to the bed. God, it, it's starting to sound even more and more calculated. So he leaves the house after killing his mother. We don't know why, and sounds like we never will. But unfortunately, we do know what happens next. After that, uh, you know, with more guns and ammunition than he could actually carry on his own out to the car, he drives about five miles to the school that he once attended. He entered immediately confronted the school's principal and guidance counselor, killing them both. He looked for people in the front office of the school, right by the front door, but they were hiding. And so he left and he entered two first grade classrooms, though we don't even know for sure what order. And he killed 15 students, a teacher and a behavioral specialist in one classroom, and five students, a teacher and a special education teacher in the other classroom. I will say the special education teacher was discovered lying over the lifeless body of the boy that she had been working with. Such in less scary. than five minutes, he fired 156 shots, only two coming from a handgun. And one of those, the very last one, he put into his own head. My God. I was a parent with young children at the time of Sandy Hook, but you really don't need to be a parent to connect with the utter utter horror of that situation and the complete waste of those precious little lives. But I remember when this happened and the most jarring element of this was the age of the victims. So for those of us that are outside the US, how old were the children at that school? In this case, the 20 children who were slaughtered at close range were all six to seven-year-olds. Primarily, they were located, as I said, in these two classrooms. And the killer also fatally shot six others. They were all women working in the schools principal, as I mentioned, a school psychologist, behavioral therapist, a teacher, a special education teacher, and a substitute teacher who was just there for that day. It's such an incredibly short period of time. Five minutes. It's about the length of time maybe to take a shower or order a coffee. And yet in that five minutes, 26 people's lives were stolen from them. The question that begs to be asked is, sort of, how can a person have access to a weapon that can cause that much harm in such a short time span? Well, guns are absolutely the hot topic. Guns is a really a future podcast topic I think we should cover because, you know, all types of guns are legal in the United States. And the shooter primarily used one of the semi-automatic weapons that his mom owned he was familiar with guns, as so many people are in the United States, and they're legal here. But I will tell you that to get rid of all the semi-automatic weapons, we're talking about getting rid of an estimated 20 million semi-automatic weapons in the United States. So I don't think that's where we're going, at least today. So how do you feel about that, that the guns aren't going anywhere? Well, it's frustrating. There's no question about that. I'm not anti-gun. I'm, I'm anti-killing. In your experience, is it unusual to see mass shooting incidents where the majority of the victims are so young, or was this an anomaly? It was an anomaly, and gun violence generally involves adult-on-adult crimes. And I think it's good for listeners to be aware as they are thinking about sending their children to school in the fall. The school shootings are a rare, less frequent situation, and it's hard to say with a straight face to people who aren't here that that's true. But Although we had 305 active shooter incidents in the last 20 years, 62 in schools, only six of those were in elementary schools. And in all those years, think about these numbers. I know that's a lot of numbers, but in all those years, 36 people were killed in an elementary school shooting. 
26 of those at Sandy Hook. And I think that's important to remember that every life lost is terrible, but about 550 people were in the school that day, including 82 staff members, and obviously nearly all of them survived. One student survived in one of the first grade classrooms that the killer entered. And in another classroom, 10 survived, many by fleeing to an outside door while the shooter was in the classroom. And that's amazing. How absolutely terrifying to be in that moment. In your research, did you pinpoint anything at Sandy Hook that you also saw at other mass shooting incidents that allowed those in that building to survive that perhaps you didn't know or recognize prior to being able to look at all of this data and research as one whole piece? Well, yeah, that's a great question. You know, one of the things that happens a lot of times in these shootings is the news reporters are in a situation, obviously, where they're just reporting what they hear at the moment. But, you know, we have the opportunity, especially in law enforcement, to look in retrospect, do an after action, as we call it. And we learned after the fact about those who escaped by running. And to me, this was as a person who was trying to work with the White House and the other federal agencies, one of the most important pieces of information that kind of validated a need to provide better instruction to students and teachers and administrators in schools, just specifically talking about schools, but really it applies anywhere, businesses or movie theaters, it applies anywhere. So for the most part, any training or drills about shooting, primarily they had focused on kind of locking down a classroom or an office to keep the people inside safe. And that's great, but really very little training talked about what to do if the shooter was inside with you or near you. And here, you know, many did lock down or huddle, as they call it, and they remained safe, but others didn't have that choice. So we know in the case of Sandy Hook that several of those brave teachers managed to hide their students from the killer. If you're in a shooting situation, you've managed to hide, you most likely have got no idea what's happening on the other side of that door barricade. And if at some point the gunshots stop, I think if it was me, I might be thinking, time to run. But what does your research tell us is the best choice here? Oh, well, we know the answer to this. If you're really locked down and you think you're away from the shooter and you're safe, stay put. Law enforcement is going to come and get you. Stay there. In the case of Sandy Hook, they stayed three hours, some of them, before they were released by police. But it's better to be safe than sorry. And I know of many instances where shooters were at doors. So it's better to stay behind the door unless you believe that there's an opportunity to run, which is, of course, your best solution. You can't be shot if you're not there. I want to ask you at Sandy Hook about the security aspects of the building. What barriers were in place to protect the school and how effective were they? We learned that school district itself was very aware of safety matters. The front door was locked. In this case, there are many schools that at the time didn't lock their doors, and this killer actually breached that door by shooting eight rounds through it. And I want to say this was, I believe, the only time that a school door was breached in this way during this type of shooting. So the school doors being locked is the first key. You know, I can freely talk about lots of college shootings where locked and barricaded doors kept the killers out. But we do know that in plenty of instances, like, for instance, Virginia Tech University shooting here in Virginia, there were 32 people killed, another 23 injured. And those were college classroom doors that were unlocked. That killer at the Virginia Tech shooting took the opportunity to chain lock the doors so that law enforcement couldn't get inside to come after him. So what is the definition in particular of an active shooter incident? Let's get to the nitty gritty of it. 
yeah, a mass shooting doesn't actually have a technical definition in the United States, but an active shooter is defined by the FBI and by Department of Homeland Security and other federal agencies as an armed individual actively engaged in killing or attempting to kill people in a public place. But a mass shooting or a mass killing actually could be a murder-suicide in a home where a person kills their spouse and four children. Right. So here's a question. Is mass shooting on the rise or is it all media hype? Oh, we actually didn't know until the FBI, with fantastic help from our local police officers, really put this together. I co-authored this study that we researched 14 years of active shooter incidents in the United States from 2000 to 2013. And I really found, I was sad to say, a steady increase in the shootings. And I mean steady increase in the shootings. For example, in the first seven years of the study, we had 6.4 incidents a year. By the time we got to the research data on the second half of those years, we had 16.4 incidents a year. Wow, that is a huge increase. And it's actually gotten worse. It steadily increased. In 2018 and 19, the FBI identified 30 active shooters each of those years. And I will tell you that just last week, the numbers were released for 2020. And despite a year of COVID lockdowns, there were 40 active shooter incidents in the United States. So more than pre-COVID. From your research, is there a clear answer to why that is? We don't have a clear answer to the why. You know, those who commit violence do it for a number of reasons, gangs, drugs, domestic problems, vengeance, workplace violence. There are so many possibilities. And that piece of research that you did, it was the first of its kind. It was 2013. Why was it the first? These weren't the first mass shooting incidents. Well, they weren't, but I think it was the first time that we really began to recognize that none of the databases that are established through law enforcement, including the FBI, captured just this unique type of shooting. Just weeks after the Sandy Hook shooting, I spoke with grief-stricken parents, and they wanted answers, not guesses, about whether these shootings were on the rise and what they could personally do. And we really wanted to find a way to look for these specific data sets. So the other thing that made it really so valuable is that we used actual police reports, not open source reporting in newspapers that may or may not be accurate. Let's talk about how Sandy Hook was this catalyst for a heated debate. There were several solutions from various quarters that were offered up. Can you give us an overview of what those potential solutions were? Well, people have many ideas about what those solutions are. Chief amongst them, guns, get rid of the guns, 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 guns. But there were many other solutions. Certainly, we talked about drills for students drills, whether they're words, where we talk to the children about what they need to worry about, which we see in Denver, Colorado, they do a great job of that kind of a whole of education approach where they incorporate it into the training at the schools, or they do a physical training, you know, these active shooter drills, or we could refer to them as run, hide, fight drills versus just a lockdown. But then there were also other solutions like how about if we secure the school in a better way? Maybe we put magnetometers in, maybe we put bulletproof glass in and we put guards around them. And then there are less common concepts that were offered, including, I think we should teach kids about firearm safety, or I think that we should actually just arm the teachers in the schools so that the teachers will be able to engage a killer if they come in. 
Well, right out of the gate, I can see why those were all controversial in their own way. But let's break it down and start with arming teachers because essentially you're bringing a gun to a gunfight. Surely that is loaded with pitfalls. Is it not just giving an additional weapon for a killer to gain access to? Well, I think this is one thing about the United States that I think it's it's helpful to understand is that we have about 130,000 schools in the United States taking care of 56 million students. So there is no one set way to do things. Those 130,000 schools, districts have their own system set up and they apply their own rules and regulations. And education is not a national system in the United States. So starting at that point, understand that the idea of bringing guns into schools, some school districts might allow it and some don't. I think right now, my last count, maybe six states had authorized it, but that doesn't mean that the school districts approved it. But we absolutely have some school districts. They've made the decision to train, arm, and send into schools teachers. And their reasoning behind it is the shootings take seconds. Police don't have time to get there, despite the fact of things that I think you raise, which is adding a loaded gun to a room is risky. And we know for sure that there isn't data to support it one way or the other. We just don't have that data yet. We don't have the data for whether or not there are accidental shootings, where students steal the guns, or whether the guns save lives. We don't have any data to support that. So the jury's out. It's a big ask, isn't it? Like you say, you're an FBI agent. You know that part and parcel of that job is that you will be carrying a gun. But when you go into teaching, that's probably not the first thing that you think might be your responsibilities. Uh, just personally, my youngest daughter is a teacher and she's not too keen on it. I can't imagine having to deal with that as a teacher. I also wonder whether a teacher who is trained to nurture is going to confidently lift a weapon and fire it into the face or body of a person who's a student. And truthfully, most middle school and high school shooters, almost all of them are middle and high school students. You mentioned there's two different types of drills and Denver in particular has got a whole education approach around using drills with words. When I researched this, the issue Oh, God, it's so controversial. In fact, when I Googled it, the first thing that popped up was an article from The Guardian and the title was Ban Traumatic Shooter Drills in the US Schools. And it went on to say things like you have kids wetting their pants, you have kids crying, you have teachers crying, and you have everyone saying, this is it, I'm going to die. And when it's over, it's just uh, just kidding. So is this just misinformation about how school drills should be delivered in the right way? Are they bad deliveries of school drills? I think it's the latter. And I'm glad you asked me that question in that way, because we give our children drills in all kinds of things, and we know how to do that without scaring them. And so bad training scares people. And if you traumatize somebody in their training, they're not learning what they need to learn. We all know we've had that fearful moment as a parent where your child is standing at two at the top of the stairs. And you know that if you scream at the child because you're so fearful for their potential injury, they might fall down the stairs. So instead, you gently work them and convince them to sit down while you move quickly to them <laughs> to get them to safety. You don't scream at somebody. And I think that we have seen in the United States some more opportunist, primarily well-intentioned organizations 
private companies that have tried to train people in this concept of you don't know how you're going to react unless you're traumatized with failing to understand from a psychological standpoint that if you traumatize at the training, they're not going to learn. Those types of trainings are becoming more uncommon in the United States, but we definitely have gone through that in the last 20 years, a a very sad, painful uh, learning process to understand that when you run a traumatic drill, there is no benefit to it. And I'm going to tell you, there absolutely are people who believe that you need to traumatize people in order to train them. And, and I think that the overwhelming evidence says just the opposite. That's so interesting. The Denver system is drills with words. How does that differ? So maybe I'll just say too, run, hide, fight. It was developed by the city of Houston, and it was a developed training that we adopted nationally as part of this White House team. I think it's so important that an entire chapter of my book is devoted to run, hide, fight training, but then there's a whole other chapter that's just devoted to training children, because I think that there are so many great ways that we can train children. In Denver, Colorado, they've had a number of school shootings at different levels, and that's unfortunate, uh, horrible situation, but it's also given them great opportunities to learn how they think they can talk to even their youngest students in a way that is uh, valuable and not traumatizing. You know, we've been giving fire drills to our children in schools for decades. And the United States has not lost a child to a fire in a school since the 1950s. So why are we still giving them fire drills? We're giving them to normalize that type of training and to have them not be so fearful of fire that they don't know how to react. You know, I had spent time listening to traumatized parents of Sandy Hook saying the children who survived ran. That's a pretty gut-wrenching conversation to have. And so even as a child, if there are options for a child to run away, well, that's exactly what we do in a fire. That's how we teach people, get away from the building. It's dangerous. So Let's teach them that sometimes you do need to get up and go because that's what the teacher says to do. Even elementary school kids should absolutely be taught run, hide. How effective is it just hiding behind a locked door? My instinct would be that that's not that effective. You've just got one piece of wood between the two of you. I mean, I think that's a misconception because if the door is locked, we know from incident after incident that the shooters don't come through. So that's great. I can identify situations, including in Sandy Hook, where the shooter came to a doorway, but walked away from that doorway, walked past it. And maybe it was because that door had a paper covering up over the window and he couldn't see inside that door. At Norris Hall in the Virginia Tech, the shooter came right to the doorway, one of the classrooms, and tried to get in, but couldn't get in. And we saw the same thing happen here. I mean, I 100% would have thought you would be a sitting duck, sitting behind a locked door when somebody's armed on the other side of it. So that is just a piece of information that I will be sharing. Where does this whole run, hide, fight solution sit on the ranking of solutions best to worst for you? I think to me, it's the highest priority of what we should be telling people. And as I said, not just about in schools. In the United States, 50% of the shootings occur in places of business. Everybody in a place of business should understand how to run, how to fight, and if they need to, how to fight. Nobody wants to kill somebody else, right? But I think words cannot express what is the reality of having a gun pointing at you. And I've seen, unfortunately, things I can't unsee, which is a lot of video of these actual shootings. And when people do intercede, they are faced with death. And we've seen that happen successfully. So fighting 
can be even just with your words. But I've seen also people who think that they're not going to fight. They're just going to talk somebody out of something and then they're killed. I will tell you that at Sandy Hook, the students just a few months earlier had been trained in run-hide fight. They didn't call it run-hide fight, but that's the essence of the training. We know there were lives saved because of that. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Have you ever felt that pang of disappointment when you couldn't add a ticket to your collection because it was digital? Or maybe you just lost it? Well, Stubforge.com is here to change that. Imagine this, tickets that not only look but feel like the real deal. Because each ticket from Stubforge is printed on the same quality stock that Ticketmaster uses and printed with genuine ticket printers. It's like holding a piece of the concert, the game or the show right in your hands. But Stubforge isn't just about replacing tickets. With the easy-to-use interactive designer, you can create custom tickets for anything, from concerts to sports games, pregnancy announcements or parties. Why not make your invitations stand out with tickets that are as unique as your event? And if you're trying to complete a back catalogue of missing tickets, Stubforge offers bulk discounts to make it both easy and affordable. With Stubforge, you can once more give your loved ones physical tickets and see their eyes light up instantly at the best gift you can give. So whether you're looking to reignite your ticket collection, craft the perfect gift or send the coolest invites, head over to stubforge.com. Start creating today and see how Stubforge makes every ticket a story worth saving. Visit stubforge.com and start making tickets today. We'll be looking at the killer's background of each incident that we discuss. But before we get into that, we won't be using the names of the killers. Oh, yes. No names. Exploiting the killer's name has only served to drive others to emulate them and to give that killer the fame he or she desires, although most of these are he's, right? It's better not to let the killer control the narrative. So with that in mind, can you explain the value of even looking at the killer? How can that help us to prevent future shootings? You know, behavioral cues are the most important thing that you're looking for. And there are a lot of things that we see, for instance, people who withdraw from life's patterns, they might stop taking medications, they might make direct threats. And those behavioral cues are the essence of prevention because we see them on a pathway towards that violence and we find a way to intercede. So that's our goal on looking for behavioral cues. And I get that. And I personally, I might see something that is unusual as a member of the community, but I'm not always sure that I would have the confidence to pick up the phone and report it because sometimes, you know, you're only seeing one piece of a puzzle. So say, for example, I saw a person pulling up in a white van wearing a balaclava outside a bank. That's like a tight ski mask that covers your whole face. (laughs) Yeah, right. Okay. So not a balaclava in the US, is that right? Exactly. (laughs) Okay. So yeah, a tight ski mask. And of course, you know, that signals to me something's going on like a bank robbery or something. So of course I'm going to pick up the phone, but I'm sure there are far more subtle warning signs that I would be missing, right? Yeah. 
I can identify lots of situations where somebody made a call about an inkling about something and we know that it saved lives. You just have to believe that can happen. Okay. So what I'm thinking is I'm going to get my pen and paper and I'm going to jot down the things that I think should fall under, see something, say something. And I guess at the end, we'll see how badly we do at spotting these behaviors that we should be reporting. So Catherine, if you can start by telling us a little bit about the background of this particular killer. Sure. So this young man was social in elementary school. He attended this elementary school and he played a couple of seasons of baseball. He was a Cub Scout. He played with Lego toys as a youngster, but he had challenges regulating and processing his sensory input. So noises would bother him, right? And this anxiety caused him to spend a lot more time isolated as he grew older. When he was in the fifth grade, so fifth grade would have been about 10 years old or 11, there were reports that he had co-authored a report that had specific details about violence in it related to child murder and even cannibalism. He's 10 or 11 years old. Crikey. He had a brother who was several years older, four or five years older, and the parents uh, separated. He lived with his mother. There were times when he had been evaluated at school for whether he needed particular enhanced educational assistance here. And from his primary years on, he'd been evaluated and recommended for extensive mental health care. After the shooting, analysis showed that he wasn't under any particular mental health care long-term, though he had been diagnosed with intense anxiety on the autism spectrum disorder and obsessive compulsive disorder. We know that the school left largely unaddressed, if they saw it, this violent graphic writings that was done when he was in elementary school. His mother was described as a gun enthusiast. She had more than a dozen guns. She shot frequently with him at the range for entertainment. And in fact, when they searched the house after her death, the shooting was on December 14th. She had written out as one of his gifts a certificate uh, indicating to him that she was going to buy him an additional handgun she thought he would like for Christmas. What a stocking filler. Yes. It seems just his mom had spent time with him in the few months before the shooting. He wasn't working. He was no longer in school. He was living in almost complete isolation. And in the last few months, we believe, behind a locked bedroom door where he was communicating with his mother primarily by email. Wow. Okay, so there's a lot in there. He was isolated and also isolating himself. The violent and graphic drawings. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a big red flag for me. And the biggest one for me is the fascination with other killers. And the challenge is who saw those ahead of time? Who might have had access to information or concerns? For instance, the isolation. Who would have seen his isolation? Every neighbor, potentially. Everyone who might have seen him before but doesn't see him now, potentially his mother's friends, who she might have socialized with. In fact, he actually had black plastic bags taped up on the inside of his windows because he didn't want to see the outside or the noise bothered him or for some reason or another. He stayed in the house even during a terrible hurricane that came through because he didn't want to leave. So there were people that the family was interacting with and the mom was making tremendous amounts of accommodations to try to deal with his anxiety and his isolation, and yet still maybe not getting the treatment that he maybe needed. When you talk about those things, like even just the windows blacked out with black rubbish bags. So I'm a neighbor. I can honestly say I probably wouldn't think to report that. Hearing that, what you're saying is that no piece of the puzzle is too small. 
And that might be the last piece that is needed to put these puzzles together. Is that right? Right. I think that no piece of the puzzle is too small is absolutely like I want that on the T-shirt. If you call the police, they could go out and do a wellness check. By all accounts, the mom was doing the best she could to try to manage this child who whose mental health issues seem to get worse. And maybe there would have been some ways to intercede. And that's so easy in hindsight to say, of course, but that's what we need. And if you don't make the call, the police can't step over and do that, or they can't send a mental health counselor to the door to say, hi, you know, how is everything going? We know that your son is no longer in school. And, you know, he has had a lot of anxiety. He's been diagnosed with that. And we wondered if we could provide some free counseling. It doesn't always have to be the police. Does right. it? Because that's a, that feels like a big step. If I'm ringing up the police and going, this guy's got something over his windows, that feels like a big step. They might no, just call me crazy, right? <laughs> no, I think, that, well, first of all, they're not. The truth is that police are happy to take all calls and all information because the fact that you picked up the phone to share means that you're concerned about something. And that's very important. When the 114-page report came out concerning this shooter's behaviors, they clearly identified these mental health challenges and the availability of handguns and long guns, firearms, ammunition. And they said, our emphasis on this shooter's developmental trajectory, the issue of mental illness, should not be understood to mean these issues were concerned. But what they're trying to say is that access to the weapons is a critical public health issue here. Right. So it's more the combination of his particular mental health issues that he had and the access to guns. That's the deadly combination here. Yes, exactly. So I want to round out each of our episodes with two questions. And the first is, what are the hard lessons that we learned from Sandy Hook? Training in run, hide, fight means that you have to push through the naysayers who say it's too scary for children. You know, I compel you that if your children are not trained in school, then get on the internet and look it up. I emphasize in my book that we just have to trust the teachers. And just like you as a parent, you're trained to talk to them. They're going to handle that messaging properly. Yeah, and I think that's important because I don't speak to my 16-year-old the way I would speak to my 12-year-old. The second question I want to ask is, what are the moments of incredible humanity, those moments of resilience and courage or bravery that we saw at Sandy Hook? Because we've seen the worst of humanity here, but that gives the opportunity to see the best of humanity sometimes too, doesn't it? Yeah, and, and you, it, great. And I love that we can end on this part because there were so many lives lost in that terrible tragedy. But I think it's important, too, to celebrate the success stories where that training and bravery saved lives. So let me just give you some examples of it. When the shooting started, there were two different teachers who pulled four students to each from the hallway into their classrooms. We know two of those students were headed to the front office where the killer was. Um, wow. With the school librarian used her training skills to save 18 children. She improvised when she couldn't get a door to lock. She moved everybody into a storage room and barricaded the door with a file cabinet. Those children all survived. There was a first grade teacher who hid 14 students in a bathroom, kept them quiet, students, six-year-olds, kept them quiet and barricaded the door. We believe, we don't know for sure, but we believe the shooter passed right by her classroom. And because the killer went into the classroom right next door, we believe that the shooter passed right by her classroom, maybe because a piece of black paper covered the window that had been left behind from the last time they ran an active shooter drill at the school just a few weeks earlier. Wow. One piece of paper. One, One piece, piece of, paper. of paper. 
And one more thing, a music teacher, most astonishing, barricaded her students inside a tiny supply closet and was able to keep her fourth graders quiet when moments later, the shooter pounded on the door and yelled, let me in, let me in. Oh my God, that is so terrifying. But you know what? Drills taught them to be quiet and to move quickly, and it likely saved their lives. I think that it's so easy to say it won't happen here. It won't happen. It won't happen. But it can happen. And you can't play the odds with lives. Thanks for listening. And if you want to know more, Catherine's book, Stop the Killing, is out now. For more details, go to katherineschweit.com. Please consider also supporting our independently made podcast. It's simple to do. Go to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. And for as little as the price of a latte a month, you can be part of the solution to stop the killing. Patreon rewards range from official do-gooder status to ad-free episodes, autographed books, and opportunities to connect with us directly for your business, school, church, or even just a book club chat. But just knowing that you are part of a movement that has the power to make your community safer, well, that's got to taste better than a skinny cappuccino any day. So please head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing now and polish off your do-gooder halo and make sure to include your name so we can give you a shout out. This podcast is a community podcast production. That's con with an N. If you want more content, then head over to Community Podcast at Instagram, where you'll find trailers on more binge-worthy true crime, like the award-winning podcast Conning the Con. And check out our show notes for all the links mentioned. Finally, if you want one takeaway action that you can do right now that can help make our community safer, Please share, rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. Everybody needs to know that they hold the keys to see something and say something. Together, we can stop the killing. It's one of those things you hope never happens, but you better train for it. Because it will happen. And it will happen in places you wouldn't expect. Be ready for it. If you've enjoyed Stop the Killing, check out more podcasts from Community Podcast Productions, like this one. Something is creeping in, don't follow it down. Let me introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. The type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now, you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy, and you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. You stole from my son, who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. Hello, this is Dr. Grande, the host of True Crime Psychology and Personality. On my podcast, I explore and explain the pathology behind some of the most horrendous crimes and those who commit them. We discuss topics like narcissism, psychopathy, sociopathy, and antisocial personality disorder from a scientifically informed perspective. 
What is a narcissist? How do you spot a sociopath? What signs can you look for to protect yourself from these dangerous personalities? It's not just about the stories, but also the science and psychology behind them. So if you're interested in true crime or mental health, I'd encourage you to give my show a listen wherever you get podcasts. From DNA testing to the Dixie Mafia, Crime Capsule brings you new stories of true crime in American history. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Join us for exclusive interviews with authors from Arcadia Publishing, writing the hottest books on the most chilling stories of our country's past. You can find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts or on evergreenpodcasts.com. Crime Capsule. History so interesting, it's criminal.